look at chapter 24, Isaiah 24, verses 14 to 23. They raise their voices, they shout for joy. They cry from the west concerning the majesty of the Lord. Therefore glorify the Lord in the east, the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, in the coastlands of the sea. From the earth, from the ends of the earth, we hear songs. Glory to the righteous one. But I say, woe to me, woe to me, alas for me. The treacherous deal treacherously, and the treacherous deal very treacherously. Terror and pit and snare confront you, O inhabitant of the earth. Then it will be that he who flees the report of disaster will fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit will be caught in the snare. For the windows above are open and the foundations of the earth shake. The earth is broken asunder. The earth is split through. The earth is shaken violently. The earth reels to and fro like a drunkard and it totters like a shack. For its transgression is heavy upon it and it will fall never to rise again. So it will happen in that day that the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high and the kings of the earth on earth. And they will be gathered together like prisoners in the dungeon, and will be confined in prison, and after many days they will be punished. Then the moon will be abashed, and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and His glory will be before His elders. What we've seen in 24, 1-13 was the great judgment of God on the earth. Now what we see is the reactions. In 14 through 16a, what do you see as a reaction? Joy. Joy. Who would be happy over God's judgments? God's people. Sure. The righteous rejoice when God punishes the wicked. That gets the wicked off of their back, for one thing. And it's uh, a blessing to them... Uh, in that God's purposes are being carried out. Glory to the righteous one. And so the, the righteous remnant are rejoicing over the earth's fall. But, on the other hand, Isaiah says, Woe to me. Woe to me, alas for me. Because Isaiah is also feeling the situation of the wicked and how hard this is for them. He feels the condemnation of other people as he's felt his own condemnation because back in chapter 6 and verse 5 he says, Woe is me for I am ruined. Now he feels that as he thinks about the judgment that God's bringing against the wicked. He says in the end of verse 16, The treacherous deal treacherously and the treacherous deal very treacherously. That's a play on words in the original. I have no idea how to pronounce Hebrew words, but the best I can figure out how to pronounce this, it's Bogadim Bagadu Ubaged Bogadim Bagadu. <laughs> Which, uh, is that good? <laughs> I have no idea what that would really have sounded like. But uh, anyhow, you've got a lot of those puns and things like that in the prophets that you really can't translate. So, the wicked are being brought down, and they're having a hard time with that, because it's a series of traps and judgments and punishments that they cannot escape from. Uh, like in verse 18, it will be that he who flees the report of disaster 
will fall into the pit. He who climbs out of the pit will be caught in the snare. I mean, you know, you go from one disaster to the next. The judgment is relentless. Reminds you so much of one of my favorite prophetic passages uh, in, in Amos, where he talks about the, uh, the judgment uh, of God and how it's so inescapable in Amos 5.18. Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. As when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him. Or goes home, leans his hand against the wall and the snake bites him. That's bad luck. I mean, you know, you're fleeing from the lion right into the arms of the outstretched bear. You know, or you, you finally get home and, you know, you slam the door shut and you lean up against the wall and the snake comes out and bites you. <laughs> like, man, you just can't get away from it. I know. <laughs> I wonder. Only you caught that. <laughs> well, <laughs> in some language, in some languages, the placement of the adjectives doesn't matter. Too bad English isn't one of those. <laughs> I think it was a thing in Hebrew. What is that? Bogadah, Bogadah. It's a Hebrew thing. It's a cross between Hebrew and Swahili. Well, you know, it's been a long day. But, uh, but at any rate, that outstretched bear. Yeah, <laughs> It just symbolizes this idea. When God determines to judge, you can't get away from it. I mean, no matter where you flee, no matter where you turn, it's just one uh, judgment after another. It's everywhere you go. It's, it's, it's constant. And God has, of course, many different ways of punishing the wicked. I mean, you think you've outsmarted him on one front. He's right there on the other side of you, ready to trap you over there. So he sees the earth shaking violently, reeling to and fro like a drunkard, <laughs> tottering like a shack because of the transgression that's heavy on it. God punishing those to heaven, the kings of the earth, gathering together and putting them in the dungeon. God's judgment against everyone and everything that violates his will, that opposes itself to him. And the result of God's judgments against his enemies, the moon's abashed and the sun's ashamed. What makes the sun ashamed? Does it cease God's glory? Yes. How glorious is God? So bright that the sun just feels almost embarrassed. It's just, uh, you know, can you imagine a light bright enough that the sun looked like nothing? Couldn't even see the sun. That's the Lord reigning on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. His glory. So God is glorified in his judgments against those who defy his will. God, God brings down the wicked. Chapter 24 just summarizes that. This is God's constant opposition to and judgment of those who are wicked. The wicked world falls before God. And therefore God shines forth supreme. I comments and questions on this. Yes, JD. What? I'm hearing 
thoughts on 23, uh, sorry, 21, but the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven? Yeah, I mean, maybe... I've wondered if he's thinking about like the spirit world that corresponds to the physical world. You know, we know that, I mean, like from Daniel, there are princes and whatever, and so maybe he's punishing the spirit realm and their involvement in the world and then the kings that are on the earth as well. He's kind of emphasized like the totality of God's punishment. Maybe so, maybe so. That, that would seem reasonable if that's the right interpretation of this. I made that very vivid description of that verse in Amos. Uh, I kind of lost the verse. So what is that verse? <laughs> Amos 5, verses 18 to 20. Well, never forget the outstretched there. <laughs> Some things, when you catch them as you say them, you might as well just go on. So. What else do you do? Alright, anything else on chapter 24? 25, 1 to 5. O Lord, thou art my God, I will, ex- I will exalt thee. I will give thanks to your name, for you have worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. For you have made a city into a heap, a fortified city into a ruin, a palace of strangers is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore a strong people will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. For you have been a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a rainstorm against the wall, like heat in a drought. You have subdued the uproar of aliens, like heat by the shadow of a cloud, the song of the ruthless. So as God does these wonderful things, what should we do? Yeah. And praise Him. Thank Him. Be impressed with Him. As God works wonders, end of verse 25, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. How many times will we see in this book that it is not military prowess or political shrewdness or chance that determines what happens. It's God's plans. For long ago, He's executing those plans to perfection in His judgments upon the world. <clears throat> he makes the city. Now, go back to chapter 24 and verse 10. You see that city of chaos in verse 12, desolation of the city. This city represents, I think, the people against God, the forces of evil. And God makes the city what? Yeah, it's just a pile of ruins. And what do we do when God brings down his judgment upon the wicked? In verse 3. Again, it's the idea that we praise God even for his judgments against the wicked. And then we turn to God as a defense, as a refuge from the storm, from the heat. Whatever it is that comes against us, God provides the protection and the security. So you see the judgments 
in chapter 24, now you see turning to God as righteous people, praising and thanking Him and finding refuge and protection and deliverance in Him. God is one thing to the wicked and another thing to the righteous. And to the righteous, He's sufficient to meet every threat and every need. Comments and questions? Six to nine. And in this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice people, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lees. And he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people, and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up the dead for death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And night. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Now what do you see God doing here? Forgiving sin, but he describes this how. Yeah, God gives this great banquet. The blessings of God are often spoken of in terms of a great dinner that God invites us to and that He shares together with us. Now, this is in contrast with chapter 24, where God took away the wine from the party animals. But now God provides a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces of marrow and refined aged wine. God gives the true banquet, the true joy, the true blessing, the true fellowship to his people. He takes away the veil over the nation, swallows up death, wipes away the tears. He provides all sorts of blessings. Now who does he provide this for? All the people on this mountain. Yeah, do you see how many times he says that? All peoples, all peoples, all nations, all faces, all the earth. This is a banquet God is inviting all men to. This is not just the Jews. It's another one of these passages that show that God intends for everyone to be able to share in these great blessings that he's providing. This is our God for whom we've waited that he might save us. You know, so as chapter 24 describes the judgment of God, chapter 25 describes the salvation that God gives. God wants to provide a great banquet for all those who turn to him. Comments and questions? Logan. Does this have anything to do with, with it, talking about the mountain, does this have anything to do with Isaiah chapter 2? It talks about uh, the mountain of the house of the Lord. Probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah. God's mountain, place of his government. Yeah, Jesus again uses this as kind of you know, the backdrop for one of his stories that he kind of uh, retells it and says the rulers rejected it, the leading people rejected it. 
Yeah, and you see actually Jesus using that in little mini illustrations as well. Like in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 12, I say to you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the others will be cast out. So, I mean, the very idea of the fellowship we have with God, the blessings we have with God, is the idea of joining in this banquet with the Lord. conception. I think this would primarily be Isaiah 2. The mountain being raised up and the blessings. David? Um, for the most part, throughout Isaiah so far, we've seen um, a God who, like we talked about in chapter 20, wasn't concerned with how Isaiah was affected like, emotionally by what he had to do. God just wanted him to do it and we see a God who again is judgment to his people, but at the same time in verse eight we see a God who cares about the emotional needs of his people. Good point. Yeah. He does in fact. And I mean he provides a salvation that answers our emotional needs. You know, I mean, really, when we have this relationship with God, we have what we need emotionally. If we'll, if we'll appreciate it. Mr. Absolutely. Other thoughts through nine. Okay. Uh, Ten to twelve. I find this picture interesting.
and Moab will be trodden down in the and straw is trodden down in the water of the Manuakah. And he will spread out his hands in the middle of it, and the swimmer spreads out his hands in the middle. But the Lord will lay low his pride together with the trickery of his hand. The unassailable fortifications of your walls he brings you will bring them. Lay low and cast to the ground, even to the dust. Alright, so we see the hand of the Lord resting on this mountain. Go back to verse 6. You know God, verse 7. God blessing the mountain. Here is the hand of blessing. But what part of God's anatomy is on Moab? His foot. He trods Moab down. Now Moab represents the enemies of God's people. Um, and God's going to describe the punishment of the enemies of God's people very graphically, very impressively here. Um, because he says, Moab will you trodden down his place as straw is trodden down in the water of a manure pile. Really, God wants to depict the fate of the wicked as graphically as he depicts the joys of the righteous starting in verse 6 you know it's a very great uh, great blessing to see that uh, the, 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 the joys of the righteous and it's a very great you know wow despicable nauseating thing to imagine Moab trodden down like straw in the manure pile Remember I had, well, family had the 5,000 caged laying hens. Most of you heard me use that as an illustration. And uh, we cleaned out the pits every month or two under these bays of cages with a front-end loader on a little tractor, a long garden tractor. And uh, that was a real fun job. Um, for several reasons, the building leaked, the watering system leaked, and you know how chickens feel when you go underneath the cages with a uh, lawn garden tractor? And so the uh, manure had just a wonderful odor and consistency. It was sort of the consistency of a real, real thick soup, kind of. And uh, it just kind of uh, oozed over everywhere. <laughs> that, was, that was really, that was a one or two day job that we always dreaded. And, uh, but now, remember Moab's claim to fame? Back from chapter 16? What do we know Moab for? Pride. I mean, remember 16? It was like, We've heard of the pride of Moab, an excessive pride, even of his arrogance, pride and fury. And there were some other passages as well, where you see the pride of Moab. Um, so, Moab, being judged by God, representing the wicked, is trodden down like the straw of the manure pile, but, you know, handed it to, to self-confident Go it alone, do it myself, Moab. What does Moab try to do? Yeah! Isn't that delightful? You know, it's falling in the manure pile, but Moab thought it could, it could swim out. So it, it tries to spread out its hands to swim out of the manure pile. 
That just illustrates perfectly the stupidity of the prideful self-confidence of the wicked. They don't want to ask for help. They don't want to humble themselves and repent and turn to God. So if they're trotting down the neuropile, well, we'll just swim out. And uh, that probably doesn't work very well with the consistency of most manure. But, you know, Moab wants to think that they can master their circumstances. That they can deal with everything by their own resources. I think that's just a perfect illustration of the stupidity of human pride. Every time you're tempted to try to do something on your own pride, you know, in your own resources, do it yourself, don't ask for help from the Lord, just imagine I'm just trying to swim out of the manure pile. Comments and questions? The New King James has a capital H for swimming. Uh, <laughs> 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 for the hand, like swimming. So. I don't think that's correct. I think it should be small age. What they're trying to say is that his hand is stretching out into punishment. <coughs> yeah. I, I like swimming through the mirror a lot better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that I would enjoy it, but... Uh, <laughs> and through the interpretation. Yes, yes, I do too. I, I just think it's a perfect illustration of how despicable sin is and how... Just, how... <laughs> You know, it, 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 it's, it's the mentality of Isaiah 9. Remember back to Isaiah 9? And what is it? Verse uh, uh, 10, the bricks have fallen down, but will we build them with smooth stones? The sycamores have been cut down, but will we place them with cedars? You know, no matter what happens, we can handle it. We'll do it. We'll, we'll find a way to make it better. You know, it's, it's really for the best anyhow. You know, we needed to replace it. Other thoughts on 25? Where was the cover from verse 7 earlier in Isaiah? We were talking about that. I don't remember. Were we talking about that? Yeah, the covering or the canopy? Or the oh, that was 4 or 5, I think, 4 or 6 minutes ago. chapter 26 verses 1 through 6 that day this song will be sung in Judah we have a fortress city the walls and ramparts provide safety open the gates let the upright nation come in the nation that keeps faith this is the plan decreed you will guarantee peace the peace entrusted to you trust in Jehovah forever for Jehovah is a rock forever he has brought low the dwellers on the heights, the lofty citadel. He lays it low, brings it to the ground, flings it down in the dust. It will be trodden underfoot by the feet of the needy and the steps of the weak. So, in contrast with the world's fortified city that God will ruin, God builds a strong city for his people. 
and a righteous nation, a faithful nation enters God's city. God destroyed the false city, he raises up the true city. Now, verses 3 and 4, I can never teach without telling a story. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace, because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in God the rock, we have an everlasting rock. I probably will never forget this passage, because when I moved to Athens, Alabama in 1991, there was a couple in the congregation, about 60 years old, Horace and Clara Brooks. Horace had been, I think, a postal worker. He'd been a big, strong man, well capable of doing a lot of things. But five or six or seven years before, he'd been stricken with Lou Gehrig's disease, which is really a uh, debilitating ailment. I mean, eventually your muscles just go. and You have less and less and less muscle control and finally just kills you. When I moved there, it was a few months before Horace died, and uh, he, he was in a bed that had a big uh, rail over it, and he, he had enough muscle that he could kind of pull himself up enough to sort of shift position in the bed on his back. He could talk, but you had to listen really carefully because he couldn't control his muscles in his mouth very well. Clara would feed him. And, uh, you know, he hadn't been able to get out in months. And this is a progressive thing. There's no hope for getting better. You're just going to get worse until you die. And, uh, you know, for somebody who's been a strong man, who's been able to do anything they wanted to do, he would have been, I don't know, I mean, probably in his prime, he might have been 225 pounds and, and just a strong guy. And uh, that's really, that's really hard. And, uh, you know, I moved there to preach, and so I went over and started visiting from time to time Horace and Claire. And every time I went, I left there so much more uplifted and encouraged than when I went. (laughs) And because their attitude was amazing. Horace had been really amazing. There had been some problems in the congregation before I moved there. Horace had been very involved with that. Everybody from all sides came to visit him. (laughs) And uh, he was not very intimidating laying there in the bed, and so he knew everything about what was going on and gave a lot of good advice and really helped work with people just lying there in his bed. I'd go and visit them. It was really a hard thing, and they'd gone through a lot of hard things, difficult things in their lives, Uh, a lot of disappointments. But they'd always talk about the Lord. It'd always be a spiritual conversation. And every single time I went, Clara would cite this passage. She'd quote it. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. Sometimes she'd be crying as she quoted that passage. But she'd talk about it. You know, how the Lord was keeping them in perfect peace. And they just were trusting the Lord. And she'd encourage me to trust in the Lord. And it's just such a wonderful thing to be there. Even though it was really hard to see Horace like that. I didn't know him before. But just hard to see anybody in that condition. And Clara waiting on him hand and foot really hard on her. But their attitude was constantly praising God, trusting in him, and talking about the perfect peace that God gives to the one who's steadfast in mind. So this passage has really been imprinted upon me. And I'll tell you, you know there's something to learn from that. This is kind of not related to Isaiah. But, you know, 
What do you do when you can't do anything? You can't go to church. You can't feed yourself. You can't work. You can't do anything worthwhile. I assume there's be a lot of people who think, God, if you'd somehow gotten me out of this, I'd do something for you. But since you just put me in this situation, what am I going to do? I guess I'll just lay around and die. But that wasn't Horace. <laughs> he probably is doing more to help more people from that bed in his house <laughs> than most people were who were active and able-bodied. What do you do when you're in a bad situation? You trust the Lord that he's giving you the situation he wants you to be in. And you do what you can do for the Lord in that situation. It may not be the situation you'd have chosen or the work you'd have done. But if there's anybody that can help glorify God, it's somebody in a bad situation. <laughs> Who'd ever get mad at Horace <laughs> when he's lying there in bed? He can say things, he can buy with things nobody else could. <laughs> and I'll tell you, there's a lot of times when if we're really suffering, it may give us more opportunities and more open doors. When we're really struggling with anything, some challenge, some grief, some disappointment, some discouragement, it will, if we'll use it for the Lord, it may give us a real blessing. And it may enable us to be a channel and an instrument of service that we could never have otherwise. So I always love to teach this text and tell that story. And uh, two or three people here from East Side and no Claire. But, um, then he brings low in 5 and 6, the unassailable city, and uh, casts it to the ground and tramples it. <laughs> There's the world city, the city that's exalted itself, the quote-unquote unassailable city. God likes nothing better than to prove it's not so unassailable. Uh, don't challenge God that way. All right, comments and questions through verse 6. <coughs> Shane. Um, it reminds me of Ecclesiastes chapter 3 when the writer says, We can't control everything. You just got to trust the Lord that He's, he's giving you this situation for a purpose. It reminds me of a story. Um, of a man that I knew, and some of you might know, I think you do, you know Tom Lee, you knew Tom Lee. Um, that man, I love that man, he was a great, he was a great guy. Um, he preached, I think, in Tennessee. And uh, one day he came down with cancer, and uh, they seemed to have cured him for a while. Then he ended up relapsing into it. And they, they took him to the hospital. He was a very active. He, he was a preacher. He was very active in, in the Lord's work. He ran a uh, radio program. Like um, once a week or twice a week, he did a radio program on the on the radio, of course. And, uh, <laughs> but um, he even in the hospital, he was still do that radio program. He was still teaching the gospel. And then I think it came to the point where he could either barely talk or barely see. And he would just ask people to come into his room and read the Bible. Because he can't do it anymore. They'd ask him, what do you want us to read? He'd say anything. Just read me anything. And they'd ask him how he was doing. And he'd say he was doing great because in some way God had some reason for this. And it's amazing to me to see people that sick. And almost like with the eyes of the Job of his wife saying, curse God and die. And him saying, no. God's got some reason for it. The steadfast of mine you keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Absolutely.
good illustration. Other comments and thoughts through verse 6. This next part is a, a little intriguing as to how it goes. It just seems to alternate back and forth between the righteous and the wicked. You know, chapter 24 was mostly the wicked, chapter 25 the righteous, chapter 26 just goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. As we see what God does for the righteous and what he does to the wicked. So, uh, would somebody read uh, 7 through 18? The path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. The path, and the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of your soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. If favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. In the land of upright, he deals corruptly and does not see the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire of your adversaries consume them. O Lord, you will ordain peace for us. You will have done for us all our works. O Lord our God, other other lords um, besides you have ruled over us. But your name alone we bring into your name. They are dead, they will not live. They are shades, they will not arise. Do that, and that you have visited them with destruction, and wiped out all remembrance of them. For you have increased the nation, O, o Lord. You have increased the nation, you are glorified. You have enlarged all the borders of the land. O Lord, in distress they saw you, they poured out for prayer. When, you know, when your discipline was upon you, like a pregnant woman who rises and cries out in pains when she is near to giving birth, so were we because of you, O Lord. How far is it? Through 18. We were pregnant. We rise, but we have been given birth. But we have given birth to win. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth, and the and the inhabitant of the world have not fallen. Alright, in 7 through 9 we're dealing with what? Righteous. And what does God do for the righteous? Smooth path. Yeah, he levels out the path. He smooths out the way. What are the characteristics of the righteous here? They wait for the Lord. They don't take matters into their own hands. They depend and trust in God. What else? What would you say about its characteristics of the righteous in 7 through 9? Yes, exactly. They want the Lord. Their spirit longs for God. They seek Him diligently. That's, that's what, you know, um, it's not just wanting salvation or wanting success. We love God. And we, we, with our whole spirit and soul, long for the Lord. We want a fellowship with Him. We want closeness to Him. That's the righteous. God smooths out their path. That's 7 through the first half of 9. Comments and questions on the righteous there. They wait for Him as well. So it shows their steadfastness just like God is steadfast. Yes. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> 
and you know, so many times when we see those the songs and they say, "Remember me, O Lord." Parents, we will remember you. Yes. They don't ask God to remember them. They're just saying, "We desire you so much that we just want to remember you." Amen. Then the wicked, in the middle of nine through eleven, what are the wicked like? How do they learn? It's not learning well, But there is a way they learn. How do they learn? Through Yeah. Through suffering. Through pain. That's the only way you can teach the, the wicked. You know, if, if, you, if you give them blessings, if you give them any kind of success, it hardens them. The only way the wicked will ever learn anything is, is through the school of hard knocks, we say, you know, through suffering, through affliction. Um, because prosperity hardens the wicked. And uh, so you see God's hand lifted up in verse 11, and his fire devouring the enemy. God will destroy the wicked uh, because they won't learn any other way. Comments or questions on the wicked in the last half of 9 through 11. Back to the righteous in 12 and 13. What does God do for the righteous? Yes. When we trust in God's way, He established peace. When we let others, you know, plot the course, then it's then that's not good. But but when we acknowledge God and confess His name, then we can trust God. He'll give the victory. He'll He'll provide peace. We just need to trust in Him and and allow Him to guide us and to lead the way. But in fourteen, the wicked, their dead don't live. Their departed, departed spirits don't rise. They're punished. They're destroyed. They're wiped out. But in fifteen, the righteous, their nation is increased. Uh, God has, has extended their borders. So you see, just back and forth, the contrast. It, it, it's the kind of thing we preach and teach a lot, and should. So it reminds you a lot of Proverbs. You know, a lot of the Proverbs are the first half of the righteous, the last half of the wicked, or whatever. You know, and that's what you have. There's just a constant contrast. You know, the broad way versus the narrow way. <laughs> you know, and so you've got the blessings for the righteous, the punishment for the wicked. Comments and questions to verse 15. In 16, they sought the Lord in distress. It was, it was uh, difficult. Um, you know, they, they were chastened. They, they felt like they were in labor, pains, um, and, and you know that's apparently a really horrible thing but it's really painful what they're going through and labor pains kind of symbolize that and uh, the, the blessing of, of labor pains is what? Baby. yeah when the baby comes I mean that's, that's the, that's the <coughs> saving grace of that but here are these people I, I think trying on their own trying to, to produce something struggling and straining writhing, crying out, laboring working and what do they give birth to? Wind. Wind. <laughs> Dust of air. 
how empty, how discouraging to have done all that work. But there's Isaiah again. You trust in God, there's blessing. You do it yourself, you trust in your own schemes. It's nothing, it's empty. What a frustration. And uh, they could not accomplish deliverance when they tried to work and labor and struggle and strain to do it themselves. It's only when we allow the Lord to guide us, when we trust and depend and wait on Him, instead of coming up with our own schemes and do-it-yourself solutions, that there's anything worthwhile accomplished. Otherwise, we just give birth to air after all those labor pains. Comments and questions? Pretty good illustration. Alright, verse 19 through 27 1. Your dead will live, their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. For your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. Come, my people, enter into your rooms and close your doors behind you. Hide for a little while until indignation runs its course. For behold, the Lord is about to come up from it, come out of it from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will reveal her bloodshed and will no longer cover her slain. In that day, the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, with his fierce and great and, might, great and mighty sword, even Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. Alright, in contrast with 14, where the wicked's dead do not live, their spirits will not rise. In 19, your dead will live, your corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust will awake and shout for joy. God gives new life and new hope, a resurrection to his people. Now, for a little while, God's wrath comes, his indignation. So what does he say they need to do? Can you think of other illustrations of where the righteous were hidden when God brought judgment? The Passover with the uh, blood on the doorpost. There's something in Revelation where he says to come out of the nations for his wrath is done. Yes, Revelation 18, that's right. Yes, come out from among them and be separate so that you don't suffer their punishment. When else has God sort of uh, hidden his people when he went to judge the wicked? Okay, yes, in a way. David, maybe. He's in a cave. Yes, maybe. I'm thinking about... Israel was spared some of the plagues. Yes, other plagues of Egypt. Sodom. Sodom and Gomorrah, yeah. God yanked Lot and his daughters out of there and, and, and separated them when he obliterated Sodom and Gomorrah. What about the flood? You know, Noah and his family, you know, hidden from that judgment, protected from that. So that's what God does. When God brings the the devastating punishment on the wicked, he, you know, um, hides his people. He separates them. And in verse 27.1, what do you see God doing? Yes, exactly. 
God destroys his enemies. Even Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, with his fierce and great and mighty sword. Uh, whatever monster, dragon, or whatever there is, God brings it down. God brings down the wicked. He blesses the righteous. That really summarizes, I think, what we've been seeing in, in these chapters, especially 24 and 25. Now you just got to put it together in 26. Judgment for the wicked, blessings for the righteous. Comments and questions? Uh, chapter 27, verses 2 through 6. In that day, a vineyard of wine, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. I water it every moment, lest anyone damage it. I guard it night and day. I have no wrath. Should someone give me briars and thorns in battle, then I would step on them. I would burn them completely. Or let him rely on my protection. Let him make peace with me. Let him make peace with me. In the days to come, Jacob will take root, Israel will blossom and sprout, and they will fill the whole world with fruit. A vineyard of wine, sing of it. Does that remind you of anything? Chapter 5, where Isaiah sang the song of his well-beloved. Do you remember that song? What, what was the song about? Yeah, about the vineyard. Yeah, it was a bad vineyard that the Lord had taken such great care of and the vineyard only gave rotten grapes and God was going to punish that vineyard which represented the people of Israel. His own people that were he'd done so much for. But now we see the vineyard again and, and he's singing of the vineyard. I think here the Lord's singing the song. God's people sing to him. Now he's singing to them perhaps. And But things are different now. What's different? He has no wrath. What happened to his wrath? His wrath's gone. He had great wrath against that vineyard in chapter 5. Now he has no wrath. And so now he keeps it. He waters it all the time. He protects it. The very opposite of what he'd done to the vineyard back in chapter 5. Because there, there were you know, no rain and, and uh, he, didn't, he took away its protection. But now he has no wrath. What happened to God's wrath against his vineyard? What do you mean? Maybe, but maybe not. Maybe he cleared out all the evil so there's no need for his wrath anymore. Maybe, but I don't think that's an adequate explanation. I think that's a part of it. Eric? Yes. I think Isaiah 53, there was somebody who suffered the punishment. God executed his anger in Jesus and therefore was able to turn without wrath back to his people. Now, I'm not saying that the other elements aren't in there, but I think the other elements don't fully answer what happened to God's wrath. I don't think they're sufficient for it. I think you have this back in chapter 12 as well. I think you have this, you know, what happens to God's wrath sort of a thing. And it's that God's wrath is, you know, is is, um, more or less, um, I don't know, uh, satisfied by the punishment of Jesus. But anyway, the wrath is gone. 
and I just love verses 4 and 5. Should someone give me briars and thorns in battle, then I'd step on them. I'd burn them completely. This is the Lord loving his vineyard so much that he just wishes somebody would give him a briar or a thorn. Think of a think of a a, a a boy, a man, a young man, who who dearly loves his bride, and he just dying for the chance to show it. He wishes somebody would mess with her. Man, he'd deck him. He'd show everybody how much he loves that woman. You know, it's that kind of an idea. You know, make my day. Just just there, there's a briar or a thorn come up. He'll step on them and burn them completely. That's God's zealous love for his vineyard. Do you see that picture? Pretty powerful. But we're not done. If you can see that, if you can feel that, this is the Lord now singing about his vineyard, and now he has no wrath, and now he's just doing everything for the vineyard, and uh, he'll do anything else he needs to do to take care of the vineyard. But the incredible thing, is verse 5. Let's read 4 and 5 together. I have no wrath. Should someone give me briars and thorns in battle, then I would step on them. I would burn them completely. Or let him rely on my protection. Let him make peace with me. Let him make peace with me. The God whose death on the briars and the thorns is offering to make peace with them. He's offering refuge to Moab in chapter 16. The God who just loved to show how much he loves his vineyard by stepping on and burning up the briars and thorns is saying, but, but if you want, we'll declare a truce and I'll bless you too. You can rely on my protection as well. It's the un, unbelievable, unreasonable, amazing grace and mercy of God that takes a virulent enemy and says, don't you want my grace too? Isn't that amazing? Is that right for God to do that? Does that kind of make you a little upset that God would do that? Exactly. I was hoping somebody would say it did so he could make that point. But yeah, that's good. That's exactly right. It's a good thing. Because we're the briars and thorns that should have been stepped on and squashed and burned up. But God has said, won't you let me bless you too? Isn't that incredible? The, the extent of God's grace and mercy is unbelievable. His longing to bless the people that by rights he shouldn't be able to stand. And, and there's tons of lessons in this. But it's hard for me to come to a passage like this. Maybe this is, shows my uh, shallowness. But it's hard for me to come to a passage like this and not also say, we who have received such unreasonable grace from God ought to give it to those who are our enemies. It shouldn't be difficult for us to love our enemies when God has loved his so much like he has loved us. Come
comments and thoughts on this section. Same thing uh, in 2 to 6 that you think is pointing to Christ. Like, I guess you said this, uh, I guess you would take this at this time. I guess I just don't see that. Well, I think that's the only way God can turn away his wrath is by what he's done in Christ. And I do think this is a this is the blessing for the vineyard after Christ has come. This is this is what the Lord wants to this is what the Lord will do to his vineyard. These are the blessings of of the coming of Christ. On on the vineyard that was worthless and even on the thorns and the briars that would come up. So is a passage like this perhaps designed to make us say, well, why why is the church not God anymore? Why is he not wrathful? And then that question is answered later. Exactly. I think there's a tension here that we don't completely understand until we get to 53. Just like he said he had no anger back in chapter 12. But why didn't he? Your anger's turned away. You were angry with me, your anger's turned away. That's wonderful, but I wonder why. We don't know yet. Now you can call Egypt his people. Yeah, that's exactly right. God's longing to bless, his 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 desire to be gracious and merciful. Because there's no it, Yes, you know, you can see why you'd want to be gracious and merciful to an innocent little baby, to a really unfortunate victim. That's not us. And if we could only see how how hurtful we've been to God, we would appreciate His grace and love for us so much more. Other comments and questions? we owed, we would appreciate that forgiveness so much more.
Good lesson. Other thoughts? Alright. I think what I'm going to do is stop here. Uh, we've been a long while today. And uh, I'd like, to, wouldn't mind starting freshly in verse 7. That was a good uh, note to end on. And I'll be as wise to not stop at the end of the chapter or whatever, but many of you will be back tomorrow. So uh, we'll work on that. We've done really well as far as how much we've covered. I was hoping.